Good evening all. Welcome to today's Cancer Healing Journey Talks. Myself Annie Jones from Community Outreach Team of Zenonco.io and Love Wills Cancer. Cancer Healing Journey Talks helps cancer survivors and caregivers to share their journey with vast number of survivors and caregivers who have traveled or been traveling through this journey. This can inspire and motivate them for their faster recovery as well. I would like to introduce today's speaker, Karen Roberts Turner. She is an attorney, brain cancer survivor and also a mentor. So over to you, Karen. Can you start uh, with an introduction of yourself? Certainly. Thank you for having me. My name is Karen Roberts Turner. I am a native of Washington, D.C. here in the United States. I um, was diagnosed with brain cancer, uh, stage four glioblastoma on December 14th, 2011. And if you don't know what glioblastoma is, it is uh, one of the most aggressive and deadliest forms of brain cancer. So my diagnosis came with a very uh, poor prognosis. The chance of surviving more than a year was uh, very, very slim. So immediately I was devastated, of course. Um, I was 47, 46 at the time. And I had no risk factors, really no symptoms of this disease. The only reason that I even was diagnosed was because when I was working and typing, I started noticing that I was making a lot of mistakes um, on, in my documents. And that was strange because I was a pretty good typist and all of a sudden I'm making all these errors. So eventually I, you know, I tried to figure it out. I switched devices and I used different keyboards. And then I realized that the mistakes were because my left hand wasn't going to the letters that I was telling it to go to, which I thought was maybe carpal tunnel syndrome, which a lot of people have from doing repetitive activities with one, one hand. Uh, so I saw a neurologist who said that my exam was fairly normal. So he actually had the, the forethought to do a, an MRI. And if he hadn't done that MRI, I, I would not have been diagnosed at that time, but he did. And the diagnosis was made based on what they saw on that image. So that was how I ended up even being diagnosed very sudden and, and very shocking. All right. So what was your first reaction when you got to know that you were diagnosed with cancer? Disbelief. I, I heard the doctors saying the words, but it just did not register. It just, the words wouldn't come in my head. They just were surrounding me. And I just was in disbelief. And then I was sad because even before I knew all the details from the staging and all of that scientific stuff, it just felt like it was bad. So I got really sad. And then I, I just didn't really, I, I didn't really process much in that first moment. It took, you know, a little bit of time because I had to make a decision about surgery. 
So I couldn't be sad for long or and not processing because my doctor wanted me to have surgery the next day. And I got this information about the diagnosis late at night, at maybe 10 or 11 o'clock. He wanted to have surgery the next afternoon, like around noon or one. So I had to make a decision quickly. Um, he gave me time at least till, till the next morning. Um, I didn't have to make it right then because I wanted to talk to my family and, and other, other friends who had come to the hospital, but at that point, nobody was in the mood to talk about surgery yet. So the next, by the next day, I had kind of worked through a lot of the initial shock and I, we prayed a lot. I prayed a lot. Um, and I, I, I came to the realization that this was just my assignment and however good or bad it was, this was something that I would have to do and that I would be very supported. Um, and I just had to go in with confidence. So the next day I did, um, agree to have the surgery and I did. Um, but it, it took a few hours for me to get my mental, mental state prepared to even think about making that decision because they were going to cut, cut open my head and operate on my brain. And that was scary. So how did your family took the news? Everybody was really shocked. Um, I don't, I didn't, I don't really know how, how they got the news other than when I, when I called uh, my sister and uh, I don't even think I called my mother. So I don't know if I told anybody, everyone was pretty much notified by each other. The doctors were there. My si actually my sister was with me. Um, but for the most part, everybody ha expressed the same shock because like I said, there were, there's no brain cancer in my family. Um, I, had, I didn't have any risk factors. I was healthy. I was healthy. I was working. Uh, nothing would have suggested that this would have happened. So it was hard for uh, all of us to really understand why or to yeah. understand what this meant for the future. Um, as I said, the prognosis, which everybody was told, was poor. Now, nobody told me that, but I, I knew that um, just because I, I worked in uh, in the area of law that deals with medicine. So I had had cases involving brain cancer and other cancers. So I knew that brain cancer generally was a bad sign. So knowing that, I didn't tell them that, but I think the doctors may have given them more information along those lines. So everybody was, everybody was sad about it, but we all were the same in, in feeling that we have to deal with this and we can beat it. If anybody can, you know, we, we can. So we kind of shifted into that, you know, fighter mentality. All right. So other than surgery, what all treatment you underwent? I had surgery um, that day, and um, following that, I had uh, radiation treatment. Uh, I think 39, 39 
treatments. After that, I had 10 uh, sessions of chemotherapy, 10 rounds of chemotherapy over that following year. So through 2012 was when most of my, all of my treatment really occurred. Uh, my last chemotherapy round was in December of 2012. It was actually December 31st. I remember that because um, I got extremely sick and ended up in the emergency room. And then once I re reported that to the doctors, they, they thought that, okay, well, maybe after 10 rounds, your body has kind of had enough, so we're good. The goal was to get through six. And so I did through, I got through six and things were working well, so my doctors. I was in, involved in a in a study, um, surveillance study at NIH, so which is the National Institutes of Health. Uh, and so my neuro-oncologist who was consulting with my general oncologist recommended that I just continue after the six. And that's what I did until I got to that last one. And then I couldn't do it anymore. And once I finished that, I haven't had to have any treatment for cancer treatment or cancer prevention, I, I have oh, and continue to get um, periodic brain scans just to make sure there's been no recurrence. And 10 years and three months later, there has been no occurrence. So I am still cancer free. So did you try any alternative treatments? Not technically, um, but in the course of, in the, in the period after my treatment ended, when I didn't know what was gonna happen, um, I did try to um, shift my diet. I did um, become, an, I tried to get involved in the mindful mindfulness um, activities like yoga and meditation. I couldn't really sit still long enough to meditate or to do yoga. So I, um, prayer and um, music, I listened to a lot of music to help myself remain kind of centered and calm and not worried about what might, what might happen. Because every day I'd wake up and be like, oh great, I made it. Because according to the doctors, 18 months, six months to 18 months was, you know, the the expected uh, time limit, so to speak. Um, so I just I just was very prayerful in that time period. I tried to uh, eat better, lot, lots more of organic foods. I tried juicing and all of those things that didn't really work for me. So um, and I, you know, I of course tried to take. Uh, in supplements that just help your body fight better and heal. Uh, and, and to some extent, I've continued some of that, but I've kind of reverted back to some of my old ways, but I still try to uh, maintain a, a healthier diet so that my body overall is able to, to defend itself. So how did you manage your emotional well-being? Like I said, I did a lot of prayer. 
and uh, music, um, listening to music, uh, gospel music, classical music, uh, sometimes rap music, depending on my mood, just helped me to shift from a, a sad feeling or a bad feeling to something else. Um, I like to dance, so I would just dance around the house. That was exercise also. I also did a, I did a lot more exercise. I, ha I was I got a gym membership, uh, so I was doing things. Um, staying active was one one way that helped. I was working. I had gone back to work, so that was also just being around people and getting back to my routine. My daughter was 14, 15, so she had a lot of activities that once I was able to get back involved in. I did, um, and I just tried to be as normal as I could be, just to start re recapturing life and, and experiencing it and not having it just pass me by. I started traveling. I made some trips out of the country that I hadn't, uh, to places I hadn't seen before. So I just did things that just made me happy. So how was your experience with the doctors and the other medical staff? It varied. Um, the first set of doctors, the first set of oncologists that I met with while I was still in the hospital before surgery, they I didn't like them. They were just so depressing. And so you don't want to go to a doctor that depresses you when you have a condition that you know, is, is, a, is a sad one. You want to go to someone, even if they aren't giving you a magic cure, you want to feel like they believe that something might work and that there's, a, there's hope. So those were the only doctors that I didn't really connect with. All of my other doctors were absolutely wonderful. Um, my surgeon, Jeff Jacobson, who, um, is no longer at the hospital where I had my surgery, Washington Hospital Center in Washington, DC. He was amazing. And he, I, I used to tease him, we, we all teased him that he was like James Bond um, in, the, in the hospital setting. So he had, did a very successful surgery. They got 100% of the tumor out. And then I was in, was connected to an oncologist also at that uh, hospital, John McKnight, who was fabulous. Um, and the doctors at NIH that I worked with were equally, equally good. So I was in a very good uh, caring community. The, the nurses that took care of me after I had my surgery were phenomenal and other uh, consultants that I've seen subsequently just for, for various things, the neurologists, the, the, neuro the neurologists who actually did the initial MRI that uh, that led to the diagnosis, Michael Baytips, also at Washington Hospital Center. He is phenomenal and of course I credit him, I always tell him he saved my life because I don't think every neurologist would have gotten the MRI because of my symptoms, with my symptoms that I was reporting. Because they were fairly mild and otherwise my exam was normal. 
but because he and I knew each other and had worked together, um, he took my complaining about what was going on probably more seriously than another doctor would have. And thank God that he did because over time, I had I started to decline. You know, I just started becoming, as that day went on, less and less alert and mm -hmm. um, just feeling more ill. So by the end of that day, I, I would have been in somebody's hospital anyway, because I wasn't able to walk as well. I, I didn't have good balance. Um, so it, things were definitely in a progressive mode, but he had uh, get maybe even the foresight to keep me in the hospital and do that scan so that if something was developing, at least I'd be in the hospital already. And turns out there was something developing and I needed to be in the hospital. So he was, he, he will always be my hero. That's great. So did you make any lifestyle changes during or after the treatment? I did. Um, some of them, like I was saying, I didn't stick with. Um, I started, I did a lot with uh, my diet and I did, I went vegetarian, I did juicing and a lot of things like that, that just really honestly are, were too expensive for to maintain um, and, and too hard for me to do uh, at that time. So I did them for a while, um, but at some point it just, I wasn't really um, enjoying it as much. And um, so I, I had to look for different, different ways to um, get my diet and my nutrition in a better state. I continue to eat, you know, I try to eat as much organic as I can um as limit limit meat in my diet exercise so that's been the hardest to maintain during this pandemic but i did uh, begin a better exercise program which i resume since resumed and i think that is one of the more important ways to protect you know our bodies is exercise uh, as much and as often as possible and then in, in all the different ways. Traveling was another um, activity that I started afterwards. And I consider that a lifestyle change because I didn't travel as much as I had wanted to uh, before my diagnosis, but certainly after, I asked myself, why am I putting it off? Why not take these trips that I've always wanted to take? And so I, I did and, and I have just been, you know, going crazy this past two years because I haven't been able to do uh, some of the big trips that I had planned. Um, but that is something that brings me a lot of joy. So I'm looking forward to being able to resume that. Um, I wrote a book. I've always wanted to write a book. So uh, in 2016, I started writing it and it was actually published in 2021, it was a five-year journey, um, but it's called The Other Twin. And it's a book that um, is geared towards young people. It's sort of in the age range of 18 to 25. And it's um, 
it's about sisters, twin sisters in college and their coming of age and coming into their own, kind of identifying who they are. But they have a lot of issues. They have a lot of drama uh, because that's what college is. It's, it's drama. Uh, and so the book is very entertaining and engaging, but it highlights uh, issues that um, young people in college likely in, will encounter, but it gives those it gives young people, it gives parents, it gives older people an opportunity to see what it's like to face these concerns in the college environment and how they might address them or even talk about them uh, with their parents or with, with each other uh, in a way that is less intimidating. So if you can say, oh, I read this book and this is what happened, what should, what should the people in the book have done that will then inform that particular student about what he or she might do. And it's um, been very well, um, I'll hold it up. This is what it looks like, really beautiful cover. It's hard to see it with these virtual backgrounds, but I think you got it. There it is, there it is. All right, yes, the other twin. Uh, it's available on in, anywhere on online, all the online retailers. So that was a major, accomplishment post-diagnosis. And I think because I have surpassed the uh, expectations, you know, my, my feeling is that I just have to just do er any and everything to make the most of this time that I have. Uh, and so I, I just, I'm continuing to work, but I, I've got, you know, ideas about doing different things and writing more books and experiencing, just experiencing uh, different different things in life. I'm also very passionate about raising money for uh, brain cancer awareness and research. So I've been involved with the Race for Hope uh, in DC, which is a, a 5K uh, annual walk, run, some people, run, I walk, some people bike, um, but it's to raise money for um, the National Brain Tumor Society. And I've been involved in that since 2012. And every year, my team comes back. We, we're called Team Incredibles because everybody on my team is incredible. And uh, we're, our goal is to raise $25,000 this year um, as our team contribution to the Race for Hope. The race raises anywhere from 1.5 to $2 million annually for uh, the National Brain Tumor Society. So it's a major event. It's the first Sunday in May every year. Um, and it's just an exciting opportunity to come together with uh, survivors, patients, uh, uh, providers, caregivers, the entire brain tumor community to celebrate what we've accomplished and to do it in a way that is actually raising money for the organization. So that's been something that's been very, very important to me and I'm very happy to be able to participate in it every year. All right, that's great. That's wonderful to hear, Karen. So what will be your message to the survivors and caregivers out there? Well, to caregivers, I, I am, Caregivers are angels. 
literally angels on earth. So I salute every caregiver. I say thank you to caregivers on behalf of all patients, because I know I could not have survived without the, the I called my little group the Joint Chiefs, um, because there were six or seven of my good, good friends, my sisters, um, who came together without even me asking. They just knew they needed to be there. And they did everything for me uh, for as long as they needed to, as long as I needed them to. So I, I just take my, my hat off to caregivers and God bless you uh, and thank you for, for what you do and stay strong. Take care of yourselves, caregivers, um, because if you don't take care of yourselves, you can't take care of us. Uh, to survivors, um, I praise God for survival. Um, don't take your survival uh, lightly. Give it, a, give it meaning, let it have meaning and purpose. Do something with the gift of another day uh, that you have. Um, find your thing, uh, whatever it is that you are here, whatever reason you were given this miracle of survival, find that and pursue it and live it fully. Uh, laugh often, love generously. Um, tomorrow is not promised to anybody, uh, but those of us who have sort of a diagnosis that carries along with it, sort of like uh, an hourglass, you think, you know, the sand is, is going down and soon you know it's gonna be up. Um, don't, don't, waste, don't waste your life. Um, but also don't live with the fear or the thought that, oh, I'm gonna die soon. Because you never know. They told me I was gonna die soon, but I'm still here. So don't, don't believe everything you hear or read. Just decide how you want to feel. If you wanna be confident and you wanna live life like there's, like tomorrow is guaranteed, then do it. But, you know, don't, don't lose sight of why you're on this earth. I think that's it. So did you join any support group throughout the treatment? I didn't join a group. I kind of already had my, my own little network. What I, what I found hard for me at that time was there weren't, I didn't have access to brain cancer groups. Uh, there were a lot of other, lots of breast cancer groups, a lot of other cancer groups. And I went to a general group uh, once or twice. I just didn't feel like in that space were the, the was the, the kind of support I needed for what I was going through. I didn't have access to, well, the brain cancer conversations with other patients uh, like I would have liked. And I don't even know if I would have gone, but at least knowing that that group was there. Um, maybe I would have, maybe I wouldn't have. Uh, now I do, I am aware of more resources that may have existed then, I just did not know about them. So that's one of the things that the uh, National Brain Tumor Society is advocating. Um, and there's some other uh, organizations that are 
that work that their mission is to get resources to organ to, to patients so that they have access to uh, not just support groups but to actual treatment uh, there are a lot of patients that live in, in areas of the country and the world where unlike me where I have first-class uh, researchers and doctors and surgeons in my backyard they they ha they would have to go hundreds of, of miles to access that same kind of care so thankfully there are there's more more availability there's more knowledge the the internet is is much better populated with those types of resources so I probably could find a support group now more readily if I needed one and if and in fact because we've been in this pandemic space there are probably online support groups that are much better situated and supportive now than they would have been then because that's that's one of the other issues that you can't really get out as much when you're you know in treatment and um not feeling well uh, so now having an online support group whereas that might not have been as popular back then could be uh more advantageous so if i needed needed one at this point that's i would certainly seek one out and probably have much better luck in finding one so um as you know so there are various types of stigmas around different types of cancer so what do you think about all these stigmas and how much do you think is the importance of awareness to the public the importance of what awareness to the public regarding various types of cancers yes well i think um awareness is 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 absolutely um important uh, not just for the purpose of eliminating stigma snicks stigmas but because awareness is what encourages funding for research and for treatments and for the development of these resources like support groups that patients obviously need uh now cancer stigma i don't think that there is as much cancer stigma as there is stigma with other diseases so at least not in in the circles that i've i've been in but it it really doesn't matter that there is whether there or not there is a stigma what is important is that awareness for for uh all cancers um and the for the need for more education for prevention more funding for education prevention treatment uh cure is is absolutely needed and i know that there are organizations and governments that are are committed to finding cures for cancer um of all kinds uh brain cancer in the big scheme of cancers it impacts a small percentage of patients however the the way it it impacts those patients probably is worse in a lot of instances than any other um form of cancer 
So even though it's a small number of, of patients that are impacted, the impact is huge. And that's, that's the kind of awareness that needs to be um, ex expressed because you, you think, oh, it's only a thousand patients. But when you look at what those thousand patients have to go through and what their families have to go through, it really is unfortunate that you know, more attention is not given to to that, to this, this body of um, particular aspect of cancer. So more awareness is absolutely necessary. And that's part of what that race for hope um, that we do, that's part of that is to raise awareness. Uh, and I know other, other cancer uh, organizations have similar kinds of activities. The breast cancer, there are multiple um, 5K or 30 miles, uh, at, you know, activities that the whole purpose of it is to raise awareness, but also to raise the money to do some of the work that they want to do. That's great. So one last question will be, if you have to sum up your whole journey in one sentence, what would that be? A miracle. Okay. So thank you so much uh, once again, Karen. So I'm sure that the session will really motivate people who are currently traveling through cancer and who has been already traveled through cancer and multiple caregivers out there as well. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.